It's a short passage, but there's a lot to discuss here. It's one of the most interesting passages we've come across in the Gospel of John. It begins in verse 43, and I just want to draw your attention. I'm not exactly sure how all different translations handle this particular verse, but I think the ESV has it right. It says, after the two days. It's not just after two days, but it's after the two days, which when you read it should make you think, well, what two days are you talking about? What do you mean, the two days? And the reference is just a few verses above it. John chapter 4, verse 40 says, when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And so I just want to remind you where our passage this morning fits in the the flow of John telling this story about Jesus. A couple of weeks ago, Jesus was down in Judea, and I'll put a map on the screen just to show you. He's down south in Judea. And you see Bethlehem is down in Judea. That's where Jesus was born. You see Jerusalem, where the temple was, is down in Judea. Judea was where the action was. And there was a feast going on, and Jesus went down to celebrate this feast in Judea. But then he's traveling, the text says, previously in John, he's traveling back north to Galilee. Many, many Jews, when they're making this trip, would have cut over into Perea, up through the Decapolis, and back over into Galilee, just so they could miss traveling through Samaria. They did not like the Samaritans. That would be very usual, very customary, very expected to take the long way around to miss Samaria. Jesus had to go through Samaria. There was a woman that he wanted to visit with. There was a village of people he wanted to spend two days with. And so Jesus takes the direct route through Samaria. He stops and he talks to this woman at the well. He talks with the people in her village as she brings them out to meet Jesus. They say, please stay with us. And Jesus stays with these people for two whole days. Then he continues his trip back to Galilee. Verse 43, after the two days he departed For Galilee. And he ends up in a familiar town. He ends up in the city of Cana. Our story is about a a boy who is healed. And I just want to point out to you most scholars agree that our story in John 4 is not the same story that you'll find told in Matthew 8 and Luke. Seven. They're similar stories. And sometimes Bible scholars look at these stories that are a little bit the same and they say, you know, Matthew and Luke told this story about a, a Roman centurion who came to Jesus and the centurion had a servant that he wanted to be healed. That kind of sounds like this story. This official comes and the official has a son. Maybe somebody got the details mixed up and this is really the, the same story and they just sort of are not on track or not on point with the details. And I'm just saying to you, these are separate stories. I don't know why in the world it is impossible or hard for someone to believe that when people know what Jesus can do, they would come to him for help. And a centurion comes and a centurion says, my servant is sick and I need you to heal this servant. And in this story, a father comes and says, my son is sick and I need you to heal my son. So these are separate stories. I want to draw your attention to one word. It's the word basilikos. It's in verse 46. I'm drawing your attention to this word because no one knows exactly how we ought to translate this. This is a challenging thing in the New Testament when they refer to government officials of various stripes and various kinds because we don't have the same form of government. And so translators end up saying, okay, how do I take the idea of what this person did or who they were or what their job was, and how do I make that translate into English in the United States of America where they vote for their leaders. And so I'm reading out of the ESV. In the ESV, he's called an official. 
If you like the NIV or the NASB or the Holman, uh, the CSB, he's called a royal official. So they sort of are trying to tell you something. This guy was, he was with the royal family. If you read the New Living Translation, they call him a government official, meaning he had some administrative responsibilities. And if you're old school and you like the King James Version, they call him a nobleman. And you say, well, why can't they all agree? It's because no one's exactly sure how to take the idea of basilicos and translate it into English for us. It's possible that this official, that's how I'm going to refer to him, this official, it's possible that he was actually part of the royal family. He might have been related to Herod Antipas somehow. And the family is sort of ruling as a family, and he gets lumped into that, and they call him this basilicos. It's also possible he just worked for Herod. He may not have been related to him at all. He might have just been hired by the administration, and he may have been something like a high-ranking cabinet member, somebody who had specific responsibilities. But this basilicos, this official, is at the center of our story this morning. And in the end, Jesus is going to heal his son. And John tells us the very last verse in John chapter 4 this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea back up to Galilee. He'd been in Judea, he came back up, and this was his second sign. Both of these first two signs happened in Cana the water that he turned into wine at the wedding, sign number one. Sign number two, Jesus heals this boy. The interesting part is. Jesus performs the sign while he is in Cana, and the boy is in Capernaum. And John says this is the second sign that he performed. When John tells you this was a sign, alarms should start going off in your head, and you should say, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's why John wrote this book, to talk about these signs. John chapter 20, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these signs are written so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ. Literally, that he's the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The end game of this story, when John says this is a sign, and you connect it back to John 20, you say the end game of this story is that you and I would walk away believing that Jesus is the Christ. That brings us to the big idea, and I'm going to give it to you in two parts. Number one, Jesus wants us to believe in him. It's obvious. That's the overarching theme of the gospel. It's the theme of this story. Jesus wants us to believe. Here's the second part, and this is important for our particular story. Jesus also wants us to examine our motives in coming to him. He wants us to examine our motives in coming to him. You know, I have some friends, pastor friends, and they don't like to preach through books of the Bible. They just like to pick something each week. And that's, that's okay. Those guys say, you know, I can pick something that fits the life of my church or whatever's happening, and they think that's the best way. I don't think it's the best way. I think the best way is to pick a book of the Bible most of the time and we just plow through and we read it each week in and out. We don't skip anything. We don't jump around. We just sort of deal with all of the text. I think that's better in the long run. And in addition to being better, I am amazed how many Sundays I open up my Bible and I go to my preaching plan and I've had this planned out for well over a year and I say, if I was going to pick a passage for the Sunday after Easter, I'm not sure there's a better passage that you could pick. 
right? We've just celebrated this big holiday where many, many, many people go to church who don't normally go to church. And maybe there's a little bit of residual on that for a couple of weeks. And I want to encourage you on the front end. And I want to say, Jesus wants you to believe in him. We want you to believe in Jesus. We are glad that you're here. If you came last week, if you didn't, if you're here this week, you weren't there last week for Easter, we're glad that you're here. We want you to believe. We want you to follow Jesus. But there's a heart check in this story for you and me. Why are you doing what you're doing? Why do so many of us get dressed up and go to church on Easter? Why is it such a big deal? And why does the same pattern always happen in our culture? Big Sunday, Easter Sunday, and then sort of a taper off to summer and everything just falls off. What are your motives in coming to Jesus? Yes, he wants you to believe, but in this story, in an amazing way, it seems like such a simple, basic story. But if you stop down and you you slow down and you stop and you read and you dig down, Jesus is questioning this man and he's challenging his motives. He wants him to believe, but he wants him to be aware of his motives. And so we're going to start, we're just going to work through the passage, and I'm going to say something I said earlier. Look again at John 4.43. I really, really wish in the ESV that the heading was back above verse 43 instead of below verse 43. Because I think as John tells the story, the natural end to his two-day visit in Samaria ends with verse 42. We know this is indeed the Savior of the world. Next story. This is the next story. It's not part of that story. It's part of the next story. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. And I just need you to listen very, very closely to how John tells this. It's so familiar, and the ideas are so familiar, you might miss what he's saying. Jesus himself, verse 44, testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. We saw the map, born in Bethlehem in Judea, raised in Galilee in the north. He is a Galilean. He's traveling up to Galilee. That is his hometown, his home area. He's going back home. And John inserts this detail He says, Jesus said, don't forget, Jesus said, prophets don't have any honor in their hometown. And then, look at verse 45, when he came to Galilee, you say he came home to Galilee, what you expect to read is that the Galileans did not honor him. Prophets don't have honor in their hometown. That's what Jesus said, right? And John tells it differently. John says, when he came home to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. And John's written it this way on purpose. It's not a mistake. This is supposed to make you halt where you're at and ask a few questions. And so let's just make this clear. In the synoptic gospels, rejection in his hometown causes Jesus to talk about prophets and honor. You can look it up in Matthew 13, Mark 6, Luke 4. Jesus goes home. For example, he preaches in the synagogue in Nazareth. They reject him. Literally, they want to take him outside of town and throw him off a cliff and kill him. And that's the moment in the story in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where Jesus pipes up and he says, you know, this shouldn't surprise anybody. Prophets are not honored in their own hometown. He gets rejected and he talks about prophets and honor. John has read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He knows how the story goes. And he's had a lot of time to think about it. He's had decades to think about it. 
And as John is thinking about this, and the Holy Spirit is inspiring him, John puts a twist on it. In the Gospel of John, Jesus talks about prophets and honor when he is welcomed, not rejected. They welcomed him. And John includes this little detail, and it just makes you want to stop and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. You got Matthew, Mark, and Luke saying one thing, and you got John saying something different. Who's right? Which way is it? Do prophets get honor in their hometown or do they not get honor? Are they rejected in their hometown or are they welcomed in their hometown? Because it doesn't seem like you can have it both ways, but John has not made a mistake. Just take your Bible, hold your spot, flip back to John chapter 1, verse 11. We already have read this. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Literally, they did not welcome him. John knows that Jesus was not uh, received. He was not welcomed by his own people. Why in the world is he then saying this just a few chapters later, John chapter 4, when he came to Galilee, to his hometown, his home base, the Galileans welcomed him. I just want to submit to you that this is one of the things in the Bible you can sort of throw your hands up and laugh at it and say, sounds like a mistake to me. Or if you have ears to hear, you can walk away understanding what John is really trying to set before us. Here's what John is setting before us. This is important the Sunday after Easter. It's important every Sunday. There's two ways to reject Jesus. Two ways. One is for your rejection to go down like it went down in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They rejected Jesus to his face They wanted to be done with him. They drug him out of the synagogue, out to the edge of town, and they wanted to throw him off the cliff. They wanted absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. That's one way to reject Jesus. What John is saying to us is there's a second way to reject Jesus, and it looks completely different. It actually looks like you're welcoming him. It actually looks like you're receiving him. But what you're really doing is coming to Jesus or allowing Jesus to come to you and your motives are completely twisted. They're completely upside down. They're all out of whack. And it may look good on the outside to everyone else. And it may make you feel good about yourself externally for a little while. But really, it's not a welcoming of Jesus. It's not a receiving of Jesus. It's a rejection of Jesus. And as we work through this passage, we're going to pick up some of the clues. Look at verse 45 says the Galileans welcomed him, and then there's a little explanation. They had seen all that he did in Jerusalem at the feast because they were at the feast also. Makes you go back and say, well, what did they see Jesus do at the feast? Why is that detail important to Jesus coming home and being, quote, unquote, welcomed by these people? One of the things they saw Jesus do was clearing the temple. They saw it. And I just got to tell you, a bunch of people from Galilee watching a kid from Nazareth up in Galilee clear the temple, they loved it. They loved it. There was no love loss between the Galileans and the Judeans. The Galileans were, let's just say, blue-collar, and the Judeans were, let's just say, uppity, okay? A little bit full of themselves. The Judeans sort of looked down on the Galileans, they kind of thought they were backwater, thought they were a little bit inbred, thought they were a little bit, you know, not quite as enlightened as everyone else. And when they're all together at the feast in Jerusalem, and Jesus, the Galilean, runs the Judeans out of their own temple, 
every pilgrim from Galilee would have been saying, that's my guy right there. Did you see that? Did you see that whip he made? I mean, they would have been talking about this thing for weeks, putting it on replay. If they had TV, this would have been the the viral video or the viral highlight of the trip or whatever. I mean, this thing was big. And they looked at Jesus and they said, here's one of our own. Put in the uppity, snooty Judeans in their place. And he ran them straight out of the temple. They would have looked at Jesus as a political agitator. And they loved it. Here's a guy who's turning over the status quo. The other thing they saw is untold signs. I wish I could tell you. John 2.23 says they saw signs he was doing. John doesn't tell us what they were. We don't know what they were. Were they miracles? Were they you know, crazy things, making water to wine, healing people at a distance? We don't know. He just says that he was doing other signs, and they saw that, and they loved it. Here's one of our own guys at the most holy place for our nation, And he's doing all of these great miracles. Here's a a political agitator. Somebody that will stand up for the underdog combined with a, a miracle worker, a wonder worker. Of course they welcomed him when he came home. They had seen him put the Judeans in their place. They loved it. They had seen and heard about these signs that he was performing. I gotta tell you, it's very useful to have a miracle worker on standby. They saw these things happen, and John says, and it's supposed to get your attention, Jesus testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Verse 45, when he came to Galilee, they welcomed him. Some translations say they received him. Why? It's because they saw the stuff he did. They saw the political button pushing. They saw the miracles and the the wonders and the signs, and they were impressed with these things. I want you to think about this man that is coming to Jesus. He's a Galilean. I want you to think about how he comes to Jesus, and then we'll talk about the interaction with Jesus, and then we'll talk about how he leaves Jesus. So number one, John's initial description of the official. He discovered, this man discovered, his position and his wealth were useless. This guy was no low-level peasant. This guy was important. He had connections. He had a steady income. He knew people. He could get things done. And he has come to the end of himself. His money is not saving his child. His political connections are not helping his sick boy. One commentator that I've loved studying, Kent Hughes, says it like this. Money can buy you a king-size bed but not sleep. It can buy you a great house, but not a home. It can buy a companion, but it cannot buy a close friend. Money can buy books, but it cannot buy entrance into heaven. And our text suggests money cannot buy life and health. This guy has money. He's got connections. He has power and influence and all that stuff, and it's of no value. And the text doesn't even mention it because he shows up and he's just asking for help, and that's the next thing I want you to see. This official humbled himself by traveling to Cana to seek help from a carpenter. He humbled himself. The trip was about 20 miles. 
And this basilicos from Capernaum, which was a respected area, uh, a seat of government up in Galilee, leaves Capernaum where the action is, and he goes to Cana, which as we talked about a few weeks ago, was really uh, a very tiny, insignificant, not important village. If you just Google, I want to see a map of where Cana is. It's sort of all over the place on the maps you pull up because nobody really knows exactly where it was. It just wasn't that big of a deal. This would kind of be like, to just help us wrap our minds around it, this would kind of be like the lieutenant governor of the state of Texas leaving Austin and going to McCamey and asking a welder to heal his son. There's so much distance in culture. We read this and we say, well, of course he would leave Capernaum and go ask Jesus. This was a big deal. This is an important guy leaving the place where he has influence, going to a place that nobody thought anything good could come from, just sort of an insignificant, nothing dump of a town, and he's not even going to a doctor. He's going to a carpenter, and he's asking this carpenter from Nazareth, would you please make my son better? This is a guy who has humbled himself to some degree. Maybe it's out of desperation, but he's humbled himself. Lastly, when he gets there, he doesn't just ask for help, he begs for it. He begged Jesus to come with him. That's the word in verse 47. The ESV says he asked him to come down. The tense of the Greek verb is a little bit stronger. The tense is that he was asking him. Like, not just once will you come, but almost like nagging him. It was an ongoing action. Please come. Please come now. We need to hurry. My son is sick. I need you to come with me. Let's go. I don't have time to waste. I need you now. Please come. He's begging Jesus to come. He begs him. If we hadn't read the rest of the story, what would you expect from Jesus at this point? This important man from an important city comes to seek him out. His son is about to die. Like the WWJD thing, what do you expect Jesus to do? What we sort of expect Jesus to do is to say, let's go right now. Or if he doesn't want to go, we just expect Jesus to say, go for it. Like, go home, he's better, it's done. But Jesus doesn't really say yes, and he really doesn't say no. Instead, it's almost like he starts an argument with the guy. What he says in verse 48, Jesus said to him, unless you, circle the word you, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That you is a plural you, it's a y'all, which is interesting because he's talking to one man. You usually don't say that when you're looking at one person unless you're trying to take that person and lump them in with a bunch of other people. And that's what Jesus is trying to do. He challenged the official's motives by responding with a plural you. He's lumping this man in with all the other Galileans. This guy comes to Jesus. He's welcoming him. He's receiving him. And Jesus looks at one man individually and he says, y'all aren't going to believe unless you see more signs and wonders. That's why you welcomed me in the first place. You saw me clear the temple. You saw the signs and wonders I was doing at the feast. That's why you're welcoming me. And he looks at this one man individually and he says, y'all will not believe unless you see signs and wonders. Jesus is looking at this man. He doesn't say yes and he doesn't say no. What he does is he questions this man's motives. Why are you coming to me? This is the question for us this morning, the Sunday after Easter. Why 
are you coming to Jesus? Yes, we want you to believe, but we want you to be aware of your motives. Why are you coming? Jesus says, y'all will not believe unless you see signs and wonders. Do you think that I'm just going to be politically useful for you? I mean, you saw me run those, those highfalutin guys out of the temple. Do you just think I'm going to be a political agitator for your ends? That would never happen in our day and time, would it? People use Jesus for political ends. I mean, we're not even in an election year, and already that sort of stuff has started. Everyone jockeying for position on faith and spirituality and Jesus and all of that. Jesus is just saying, look, I want you to believe. I want you to believe. But why are you coming to me? Is it just for your political agenda? You just want me to rubber stamp it? Is that what you want? You want the big red Jesus stamp on your political agenda? What's your motive here? Did you just like the fact that I put the Judeans in their place and that made you feel a little bit better about yourself as a Galilean? Is that why you're coming? I, I, I give you a little self-esteem boost. You're looking for a self-esteem boost? Why are you coming? What's your motive? Are you excited about the possibility of having a, a wonder worker on speed dial? That's going to come up again in chapter 6. Like, they, they're chasing Jesus around. They're literally following him. Jesus is trying to get away from the crowds, and they just keep chasing him around, and it's because they want another miracle. So Jesus is challenging them. Why, why are you here? You're not going to believe unless you see more signs? How many more signs do you need to see before you believe? What's your motive? Are you here because you just want Jesus to deal with the consequence of your sin? In my Sunday school class, we just studied the book of Judges this morning, opening chapters of Judges. These judges, God raised them up, and they saved the people from the immediate consequence of their sin. Maybe that's all you want from Jesus. You just want out of a pickle. You've dug yourself into a pit. You want Jesus to help you out of it, and maybe if he would just do that, you'd be good. Like, I'm in a bind, I need you to help me out of this bind, and after that, I'm going to go on my way and I'm not going to bother you anymore. What's your motive? Why are you coming? Maybe it's just as crass as the prosperity gospel we hear on television and the internet, and all you really want is Jesus to make you happy and wealthy and healthy and all the rest. This guy comes to Jesus and he says, my son is about to die. And Jesus starts an argument with him by lumping him in with all of these Galileans. He says, y'all, you guys, you Galileans, you're not going to believe unless you see signs. He's questioning his motive. Eventually, he sends him on his way. And I just want you to think about this official on the backside of his encounter with Jesus. Notice John's final description of the official. Number one, he's persistent. Give him kudos for that. Jesus starts an argument. He questions the man. And rather than bow up, rather than get defensive, rather than say, what kind of thing is that to say to a guy whose son is on the verge of death? He just looks at Jesus and he says, I really need you to come with me. I need you. I'm desperate. I've humbled myself. I've come all the way here. I need you. Verse 49, the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. He's persistent. Secondly, he believed the word that Jesus spoke. This is the great hinge of the whole passage, in my opinion. Verse 50, Jesus has been asked at least twice to go with him. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. 
Go. I know you came because of the things that you saw at the feast, the signs. You came because of what you heard I did in the temple. You come because of these reports about me that have spread. But I'm asking you to set all that aside, and I'm asking you just to believe my my words to you, and I'm telling you, go, your son's going to live. I'm just asking you to believe that. And the man has a crisis moment. He's come to the point where he knows this is the only person who can help. No one else can help. I'm down to Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm not going with you. Just go. And what you and I would do is we'd get out our handy-dandy iPhone and we'd FaceTime back home and we'd say, okay, before I leave this guy, before I try to kidnap this guy and bring him back with me, how's little Johnny doing? He doesn't have that option. It's travel home 20 miles. And if he's not well when he gets home, he may not have time to come back and ask Jesus again. Look how it plays out. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, go, your son will live And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. This is a great picture of Hebrews chapter 11. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. This man had to take a step of faith and say, I'm going to believe you. I'm going to leave. You're the only person that can help me, and I'm going to go. And I'm going to leave you here, and I'm going to trust that you are going to do what you've said you're going to do. I have no proof of it. I have no verification of it. I'm just going to go. He believes the word that Jesus spoke to him. Thirdly, he obeyed. He obeyed. He obeyed Jesus and he went on his way. Faith is always accompanied by action. You never can separate the two. I don't care what any preacher or teacher or book or podcast or Facebook post says. You cannot separate the two. This man comes to the point and says, I believe the word that you're speaking to me and I'm going to go. Verse 50. He believed the word Jesus spoke, and he went on his way. Lastly, he becomes a missionary, and he tells his family about Jesus. Remember, Jesus didn't go. Jesus didn't go for the get well party, the get well celebration, the let's get the balloons out, and let's have a cake, and let's all be excited that this son of ours who was about to die is now alive. Jesus didn't go. And yet we come to the end of the passage, and not only does John say that the man believed, verse 53, he himself believed, but he also says all his household believed. Where did that come from? That came from this man telling his family the truth about Jesus. So that's the story. I just want you to step back and think about what this story set before us. Jesus wants us to believe That's the whole point of this gospel. That's the point of this story. Believe that Jesus is the Christ. And this story adds just a little bit of a wrinkle to it and says, yes, Jesus wants you to believe, but he also wants you to be aware of your motives. And just in a moment of honesty, can we say we are really bad at being honest about our own motives and things? We'd like to think we're really good at judging other people's motives, We're really good at that because we say, oh, I know why that person did this. Let me tell you why. I know why they said that. You You know why they said that. I know why they said that. The truth is we're not very good at judging other people's motives, and we're not very good at judging our own motives. And Jesus is challenging us to do exactly that. Yes, I want you to believe, but I want you to be aware of your motives. What are you coming for? Why are you receiving me? Why are you welcoming me. And what I want to submit to you that the true test of your motives 
is not just to try to navel gaze and be introspective. I think the true test of your motives is to look at your life and to see what's changed. Has anything in your life changed? Because I'm convinced people who come to Jesus with wrong motives usually don't end up being changed by Jesus at all. They might go through the right religious motions. They might say the right thing openly. They might welcome him like the rest of the Galileans. They might do the right religious ritual. They might have the right religious experience. But in the end, they don't really experience any change. Jesus doesn't change them because that's not what they came for in the first place. They came to use Jesus for their own ends and their own purposes. And the question is, has Jesus changed you? Because he changed the man in this story. I just want you to, if you have your Bible out, look at verse 46. In verse 46, we meet this man. He shows up. He's an official, a government official, a nobleman, a royal official, a basilicos. He's important. You jump down to verse 49, and that's off the table, and he's just a father. And he says, my child is about to die, and I need you to come with me before he dies. I'm, just coming to, I'm not coming to you as an official. I'm not making demands. I'm just coming as a dad, and I'm asking you to help me. And if you keep going in the story, it never uses the word missionary or preacher or teacher, but clearly that's what he was because all of his household believes. Verse 53, he goes home a missionary. He shows up an official. He talks to Jesus as a father, and he goes home as a missionary. The challenge for you and the challenge for me in this very short, simple story is not complicated, but it is challenging and it is convicting. Number one, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe that he's the Christ, the Messiah? He's the one that God promised to send to deal with our sin. He lived a life of perfect obedience. He died our death on the cross. He defeated sin and death by rising from the dead, and he's promised to come back again to gather his people together. Do you believe that? Secondly, what are your motives in believing that? What are your motives? You need out of a bind? You have a political agenda you want furthered? Maybe you just want a miracle worker on demand. Maybe you want the consequences of your sin to go away, the immediate consequences of your sin. What's your motive? And the way to really gauge that is to look at your life and to say, is Jesus changing me? Is he changing me? Am I becoming more kind? Am I becoming more patient? Am I showing up as an official and then talking to Jesus as a father and then going home as a missionary? Is there change in my life? Or am I coming to Jesus trying to simply use him for my ends and for my purposes? He wants you to believe He wants you to be aware of your motives, and he wants to change you into the person that he wants you to be.